0: or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996.
1: It's our custom to introduce ourselves at this point, and so first, I'd like to ask if there's anybody in the uh, the King Buddhist Fellowship, uh, could you just uh, uh, tell us your name? I'm Jose. Welcome, Jose. Thank you. Uh, anybody else?
2: Yeah, I'm Noah.
1: Noah, welcome. You. Welcome, Noah. And uh, anybody online here for the first time, or returning after the absence. Uh, um, Shane, could you uh, unmute and just say hello? Hello, my name is Shane and I'm from Santa Cruz, California. I'm really happy to be here today. Thank you. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, at this point, uh, you know, let's. Uh, um, my name is Henry and uh, why don't we introduce ourselves? My name is Alex. Luis.
3: Still new.
2: Hi, Clark. Lee. Jeff. My name is Jerry. Stephen. Matthew, uh, Bill, John, I'm Joe, George, I got I am, <clears throat> my name's Cass, <clears throat> I'm Stephen, Jose, I'm Johnny, Jim, Orgy, Donald. No.
1: Yes, and speaking of Donald, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's my privilege to introduce uh, Donald Rodford. Uh, uh, Donald is a Ph.D. and a member of the Teachers' Council at Spirit Rock Center and a teacher at the East Bay Meditation Center. Donald teaches retreats and groups on concentration and insight meditation practice, loving-kindness practice, transforming the judgmental mind, mindful communication, working skillfully with with conflict, and socially engaged Buddhism. He has practiced insight meditation since 1976 and has also received training in Tibetan Jogchen, body-based psychotherapy, and trauma work. He has helped to guide many six-month to two-year training programs in socially engaged spirituality, both Buddhist-based and interfaith and is the author of The Engaged Spiritual Life, A Buddhist Approach to Transforming Ourselves and the World. By the way, you can obtain a copy uh, out there.
4: If you you get one, I'll (laughs) sign it. And uh, he's also the
1: co-editor of Ken Wilber in Dialogue. And uh, he has a website, www.dumbobrothberg.com. Yeah.
4: Thank you, thank you, Henry. And uh, great to be back here. I think I have not been here in person since before the pandemic. I've been online, and um, you know I value my own long-time connection with uh, Gay Buddhist Fellowship. Really, there's been an association pretty much since the beginning. You know, that uh, I think, the, I think, as many of you know, GBF came out of. A summer program that I co-organized for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and we had anyway. I won't go into that so much, but it's a long-time connection that's uh, you know, important for me. And so uh, today, I want to explore—surprise, surprise—the theme of reactivity. Maybe a surprise for people online. I gave a handout so people know theme related to the talk that I want to explore really what's um, right at the center of Buddhist practice, which is the transformation of reactivity, and I'll, I'll explain that in a moment. And I want to briefly talk about how that is at the center, and then be very practical and talk about 10 ways of transforming reactivity. So let me give a little bit of background and even give a a definition of reactivity, which is important. One of the last talks that I gave here in person before the pandemic was a talk about the meaning of dukkha, which is the term in the Pali language that's usually translated as suffering. And I gave that talk here, and it was actually transcribed and uh, published in the newsletter. And for me, it's an important talk because there can be a lot of confusion, even in the core teaching of the Four Noble Truths, because the Buddha, in that teaching talks about Dukkha in the first truth and talks about the end of Dukkha in the third truth. But we can ask, what is Dukkha? And there's confusion because in the actual text there are at least four meanings of Dukkha. And some know the most common one, I won't go into it so much, but the most common one is simply the presence of the unpleasant usually translated as suffering. And yet, we can ask the question, what does it mean to end suffering? Maybe when we heard the teachings for the first time, the end of suffering sounds pretty good. Anyone <coughs> <relate> to <that? laughs> But what does it mean? It doesn't mean the end of unpleasant experiences. It doesn't mean the end of... Uh, uh, difficult body experiences, mind experiences, interpersonal experiences, social experiences, etc. doesn't mean that. Uh, those continue. The Buddha, when he was older, had a bad back. He also sometimes had headaches. I'm glad that wasn't censored out of the teachings, right? But um, what that meant is that he was having unpleasant experiences but presumably he related to them in a different way. And what I showed in, I hope, in that talk several years ago, was that the most important meaning of dukkha for understanding what the end of dukkha means is dukkha as reactivity. What does reactivity mean? It's brought out especially in two core teachings. One of them is the teaching of the two arrows, sometimes translated as the two darts. How many of you know that teaching? Yeah. If you, I usually mention it in half of my talk, so you've heard me you've heard <laughs> probably. And so the uh, teaching of the two arrows goes like this. The Buddha asked everyone at times experiences unpleasant experiences. What differentiates a mature practitioner from a non-practitioner? They didn't answer his question, so as was commonly the uh, occurrence, he answered his own question, and he said, yes, everyone actually at times has unpleasant experiences. In that, no difference between a mature practitioner and a non-practitioner. Could relate to the Buddha's headaches. Everyone at times has unpleasant experience. And he says that having an unpleasant experience is like being shot by an arrow. And he called that the first arrow. What differentiates the mature practitioner from the non-practitioner is whether one shoots a second arrow at oneself or others as if this would sometimes help, somehow help get rid of the first tower. In other words, we, uh, when we have difficult physical experiences, unpleasant physical experiences, we may tense around the unpleasant experiences as if that would somehow help. And it doesn't, actually. And actually, uh, research on some forms of chronic pain shows that as much as 80% of what people experience as chronic pain is the reactivity, the, the tensing, the second arrow. And so not surprisingly, bringing mindfulness into areas of chronic pain was actually the first place where there was a bringing of mindfulness into the medical area. Because if you can reduce that eighty percent, you still have the twenty percent. But if you reduce the eighty percent, it makes a huge difference. And I think we also know what that second error looks like. I have something difficult happen in my experience and maybe I blame myself, I blame another. That's the second error, right? Someone says something I don't like. And I go right back and say something mean to that person. That's the second arrow. That's that's reactivity, right? And uh, you know that happens on all sorts of levels. It happens uh, individually. It happens relationally. It happens between groups. It happens socially. A lot of co- social conflicts are two groups shooting second arrows at each other, right? And I would actually interpret the teachings about nonviolence as very, very similar to the Buddhist teaching coming out of Gandhi and King. They say, we have received pain. We will not pass on the pain. We will try to stop that cycle of, call it reactivity, of uh, shooting arrows at each other. Right? Another core teaching where this comes out is the teaching of dependent origination the central part of it, where the Buddha talks about how with every experience, we have you know, every sense experience, we have a uh, what's called a feeling tone, a sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That's a given. So sometimes we have pleasant experiences, sometimes we have unpleasant experiences. That happens with every moment. Most experiences that we have are neutral. And then he said, when we're not aware, when we're not mindful, and we have our habitual conditioning in a certain area of our lives, we will tend, because of the pleasant experience, to want it to be there more and to grab hold of it. I have a pleasant taste when I'm eating. My mind might naturally just say, you know, reach without thinking for the second piece of cake. Probably a few of us have done, <laughs> or something similar, but some kind of pleasant experience. Problem isn't the pleasant experience; it's the unconsciousness and the habitual nature of it. I, I worked once with a group, and I told them, you know, pleasant experience—not at all the problem. The Buddha said actually, pleasant experience is very important, just for feeling good, etc. And I said, "The pleasant experience is not the problem. We could just sit here next time in our group and have, you know, cookies and chocolate cake the whole time, and it wouldn't necessarily be a problem." And they said, "Well, let, let's try it." So <laughs> <laughs> <what> we did, <laughs> and we, we um, you know, we explored uh, what it's like to be with the pleasant with you know, a little more consciousness. Same thing with the unpleasant. When we're not aware, this is probably what, you know, what comes to mind more readily and matches the teaching of the two arrows. When we're not aware, we will tend with the unpleasant to not want it to be there and then go into trying to push it away. We do that at the level of body, we do that at the level of the mind, like with some of the examples I gave, we do that interpersonally and so forth. The way I'm defining reactivity, reactivity is the shooting of the second arrow, which is more about the unpleasant, but it's also the grabbing hold of the pleasant and the pushing away the unpleasant at the level of the body, thoughts, interpersonally, etc. So that's, I could do a whole talk on that, but that's the quick uh, account of what reactivity is. And so I would say this is actually a clearer way of talking about the Four Noble Truths. You know, and I prefer reactivity as opposed to suffering. I used to define suffering and give kind of a technical definition of suffering. That suffering is like the shooting of a second arrow, right? And you can do that. Some teachers do that. But because pain and suffering are not always differentiated in normal English, I think probably the cognate in other languages, uh, then it can be confusing. So I, I prefer to talk about reactivity and would say that this is right at the heart of the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, and that's at the heart of the Buddha's teaching. I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. You know, and it's the primary meaning. So that being said, how do we work with and practice with reactivity? That's, my, that's the rest of my talk. Given that account of reactivity, what are ways of practicing? And in the handout, I mentioned ten. And I'll I'll try to be brief with these uh, and go through them. So, number one is understand the nature of reactivity. And it's really to remember especially these two wisdom teachings I mentioned, the teaching of the two arrows, which goes so far in our practice. Uh, when I work individually with people, the most common guidance I give that, to them is you've had something difficult or painful happening happen to you, watch out that you for the shooting of the second arrow, like blaming yourself, blaming someone else, you know, telling negative narratives to yourself, etc. Very, very common, right? It's the most common guidance they give. And so remembering the teaching of the two arrows, remembering the teaching of that movement from contact to grasping or pushing away, how how pleasant or unpleasant. That's very simple expression of the teachings. Remember remembering those teachings and also know that the reactivity can occur um, individually, uh, as well as relationally and collectively. Right? That uh, you know, one of my colleagues, David Loy, has very helpfully pointed out that the the he doesn't use language of reactivity, but the grabbing hold, you know, which we sometimes call greed, and the pushing away uh, can get institutionalized. Right, that's part of reactivity. It's not just individual reactivity gets in, in, uh, institutionalized. You know, as we know very much, you know, it's happening right now, right, with the institutionalization of all the legislation in a lot of states, anti-LGBTQI, uh, anti-trans, all that stuff. That's institutionalizing uh, ill will in a way. And of course, it occurs in racism. And we can, we can also, in a way, we could say that in many ways, the economic system institutionalizes greed. Right? I remember uh, an account of a downturn on Wall Street. And you know, a trader said, there are two cycles around here. Most of the time, we're in what I call a greed cycle. When we have downturn, then we have a fear cycle, <laughs> right? And, and, that, and that's it, right? so, And again, there, there are a lot of nuances to this, so I'm, I'm oversimplifying. But um, the point, the larger point, is to say that uh, when we think of reactivity, it can be there individually, it can be there relationally, between people, and it also can be there more socially and collectively, institutionalized. And so, first way of practicing is remember the teachings, let them guide guide one. <laughs> a second um, important guideline when reactivity comes up in the moment is to assess the level of reactivity that's occurring. I like to use a one to ten scale, and If it is in the workable range, maybe not a 9 or a 10, then we can actually, this goes to the third guideline, we can actually bring mindfulness to it, study it, look at it. But if it's a 9 or a 10, or maybe related to trauma or something like that, it's really important to know that because if it's a really high-level reactivity, we need another response. Mindfulness won't be a skillful response necessarily. It would be what helps get me deactivated, or what helps me to come back to balance would be the question. Really important caveat: not always given. Historically, in mindfulness training, you know, I, I went through a, a trauma training, and we, you know, a lot of people who had backgrounds of trauma mentioned how. Even in retreats or in training, they were told, just stay with it. Mm-hmm. That's not wise when it's a 9 or a 10 or where there's activation. We know that better now. You know, but it's, uh, that's an important um, dimension of practice. Third guideline, uh, you know, when it's in the workable range, be mindful of reactivity. Study one's own patterns. Know what your top five are. If we were doing this in multiple weeks, that would be the homework for next week. (laughs) (laughs) Study your top five, you know, or or maybe I should back up. Get a list of what are your top five. Name them. Look out for them, you know. And then when when reactivity comes in the moment and it's in the workable range, explore it. Do what we call in our practice inquiry or investigation. What's it like in the body? What's it like in the mind? What triggers it? You know Really to get to know it well. When we get to know it well, then we, maybe we're going to, a, I don't, know, a family situation, and we say, "I might be triggered, because I know that I've studied. You now like for me, one of my triggers is, I don't think someone is listening to me. Very common, right? How many can relate to that? <laughs> and you know, and I can know I'm going to a situation where that might be likely, right? and I can actually prepare and have some sense, okay, when that happens I may go here or be mindful or you know have a bathroom break and come back to center or whatever. Okay? So that's the third guideline, is really noticing. We don't so much get rid of reactivity, is that we notice it sooner, and it has less you know, less uh, really uh, I don't know impact or less uh, does less damage, so to speak. You know, the the patterns of reactivity are in the are in the brain, and they can still, when we're stressful, get activated. But the key, the way that mindfulness especially helps, we notice them sooner. Hopefully, closer to the beginning. That's how the practice works. Okay. Number four is sometime in our practice, be with the pleasant and the unpleasant. And one guidance I often give is like for a given meditation period, say if a moderate, if a workable level of pleasant or unpleasant occurs, that's sort of moderate level or greater, study what it's like. Notice with the pleasant where there's a tendency to grab. Notice with the unpleasant, which is typically a little easier where there is a tendency for the mind to go to reactivity in some way, right? Just to, to notice that. And it's really to bring the exploration of the pleasant or unpleasant into our practice. Number five. And I'm intending to get through these and then have a good chunk of time for talking together. <laughs> so, number Number five. Have a, it's really to have a regular heart practice you know the heart practices are loving kindness compassion joy equanimity those are the traditional ones and I also would bring in forgiveness and gratitude and also empathy I, I, I like to teach empathy as a kind of an interpersonal practice uh, and I think having one heart practice as a regular part of one's practice is really, really crucial. You know, I, I mentioned seven of them, but just have, just need one, you know, and practice at least ten minutes a day. That will go a very long way. That, hopefully, can be doable. And you can also practice these, you know, like I practice loving kindness, especially when I, um, actually, when I go swimming. I do, um, I do, um, I swim uh, several times a week, I do lap swimming, and I do loving kindness as I do laps, one being per lap. <laughs> and I, I have my rotation. Right? Anyway, uh, but but you can do loving kindness. works very easily when you take a walk. Some people do it when they're driving, you know, and so forth. Or just do it. Anyway, these um, the heart practices are really important because. In part, as we you know a lot of our looking into reactivity is actually going into something that's a little painful, and if we're doing that a fair amount, we need to have some balance to go into what's painful, and having compassion or loving kindness in the territory helps give us balance, so it's not oh, I'm going into pain again in my meditation, okay right so it's more like we Have some time for just holding ourselves and maybe others with with the warmth. So again, I assume how many people have a regular heart practice. Yeah, I think it's 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 common. If you don't, ten minutes will go a long a long way because it also sometimes when the level of intensity is like more than nine or a ten, actually bringing up the loving kindness can be a way to move out of it. You know, like middle of the night. You wake up, something didn't go well yesterday, you're blaming or judging yourself. Anyone ever had that experience? <laughs> and going to a heart practice can really be beautiful. Just notice that happen and go right there, not to let it repeat for you know half an hour in the middle of the night. It can be really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. And so that can really be crucial, and then sometimes we can, uh, you know, when we're caught in reactivity, we can say, okay, I'm caught, let me deliberately go into one of the heart practices now <clears throat> as an antidote. Okay, number six. This is, a, this is a big one. And often our reactivity is linked with some insight or intelligence. And so, the aim of reactivity is not going to be to suppress the reactivity, just get rid of it. That doesn't really work. Although, in the moment, sometimes that's helpful, just in the moment, short term, just to come back to center. But, because a lot of our reactivity is connected with insight, and I'll give some examples, The aim is to transform the reactivity, not just to get rid of it and suppress it. What does that mean? Some examples. Let's suppose I have a lot of reactivity because a friend didn't keep an agreement. Right? Anyone ever had that? (laughs) Okay. Um, And so what I noticed is important. Person didn't keep uh, an agreement. Ideally, what I want—it depends on the nature of the relationship—but in a lot of relationships, I could. What I want to do is actually work through internally my own reactivity, and then go talk to the person about what happened as much as possible without reactivity, right? Or you know, with a social issue, I can be have a lot of reactivity about something that's uh, unjust. Or not right socially, right? I can have a lot of reactivity. The aim, is, the aim isn't to suppress that, but it's to do my inner work and then see if I can respond to the situation without reactivity. You know, not always very easy for either of those situations, but it points to the way that what we're looking for is one again is transforming. The reactivity by yeah transforming the reactivity so we separate out the reactivity from the insight. We do transform and the reactivity ends for the most part, but then we keep the insight and use it for the purposes of compassionate action. So that's crucial. And actually, uh, you know, I actually hear teachers at times. Colleagues sometimes say, you know, for example, one of the main forms of reactivity is becoming very judgmental towards oneself or others. And I hear sometimes people say, judgments are bad, get rid of them. That's for me a problem. We want to transform the judgmental mind, not get rid of it. Because the judgmental mind often carries a lot of insight. That's why it has so much hold on us, right? Oh, I'm right. Therefore, whatever. <laughs> Something like that. Right. Okay. So That's a big one. You know, and that, that can also be applied, applied socially. And so, uh, number seven, this is a little more simply. In reactivity, we shoot the second arrow. We learn not to do it. We learn alternatives. Sometimes it could be something happened, I notice myself repeating a narrative over and over again, and we say to ourselves, I'm not going to go there. It's as simple as that sometimes, just to say, I'm not going to go there. You know, but that depends on mindfulness. If you're not mind- if we're not mindful, we won't notice it, and it'll just keep on happening. Right? Okay, that's a reason for regular mindfulness. Number eight... In reactivity, we're on automatic, typically. We're on automatic, we're in habitual mind, and so one thing that's helpful when we notice reactivity is to come to it with conscious intention. Bring consciousness and intention to the whole area. That's number eight. Okay, I'm getting there. Um, Number nine and this also is a little more complex, a lot of our reactivity depends on patterns that we've had that go very deep and often go way back in our lives, often to childhood, right? A lot of our most common patterns of reactivity are very old, like my pattern of um, getting into reactivity when I think that person's not understanding me. And it's related to you know, uh, old patterns about not feeling I belong and no one understands me and so forth. Those, those are very old patterns, right? And we, probably each of us, have our versions of those. Maybe you know, some similarity, maybe, to what I named. But there are many, many of them. I, I use the language of calling those limiting beliefs and they're common and this is a sort of a depth dimension of working with reactivity. Part of our work with reactivity, and this can take some time, is to go deeper into our patterns of reactivity and identify those limiting beliefs, and I imagine a lot of people have been doing that for a long time. It might be that's also the territory sometimes of psychotherapy, and so forth. How many people can relate to that? that it's been a big part of your practice, yeah. And we can uh, we can keep on we can keep on doing that. This is uh, this is from the poet Rilka. No one lives his life. Disguised since childhood, haphazardly assembled, from voices and fears and little pleasures, we come of age as masks. Our true face never speaks. And so a lot of our practice is identifying those masks and letting the true voice speak more. It's a way of talking about our practice. Again, there are individual limiting beliefs. There are collective limiting beliefs. You know, and we internalize. You know, we internalize them even if we disagree with them. You know, related to homophobia or age or uh, ethnicity or race. You know, those are those are part of the part of the field. And number ten, also a lot and complex. Is that we learn to develop non reactive ways of speaking and acting and integrate that with our practice. So we integrate that with our inner work. This is where, again, the model is of combining inner work with reactivity with outer response. And we learn, you know, wise speech in the Buddhist tradition, um, skillful communication. Ways to work with differences and conflicts, social action—you know—that is increasingly not based in reactivity, which is, you know, can be challenging. How do we do that? And you know, it's, you know, in a lot of social movements, you know, it, maybe we even what first takes us into a social movement is the reactivity, because it, it brings, it's connected with the insight into injustice. Let's say. But you know, uh, I would say that a healthy social movement is going to have a way to work with and transform the reactivity, because otherwise it actually probably many of us know can really um, influence negatively the social movement. You know when I, I once did a, a workshop for a conference on spiritual activism, and I asked, "What's the most common issue?" And the majority issue named was, "Within our organization, we get on each other's cases a lot." You know that. You know. Uh, you know. That's what came to mind for them. Interesting. They didn't talk about. You know. That, that's what they mentioned. First of all, of course. You know, there are a lot of levels to this, but that that's that's the tenth. So this is. Uh, this is our practice. This is, a, this I think, is right at the heart of our practice, and you know, how to work with this. We might take, uh, you know, one or two of these at a time, and work with them for a week, right? And where this could be, you know, work with each of them for a month. It could be a ten-month curriculum. <laughs> But when we're doing that, we know that we're practicing right at the heart. I think this is the heart of the whole 2,600-year-old tradition. And, of course, it overlaps with other spiritual approaches and traditions. This is right at the heart. This is, again, in my mind, a simpler way, even, of talking about this than the Four Noble Truths. Um, And so, yeah. um, Yeah, let me end there and um, appreciate your kind attention and we can open things up to uh, talking together. Maybe, maybe how about just a moment of quiet, see what may have resonated with you, see if any uh, questions came up or maybe a sharing of some way you've worked skillfully with reactivity. So, thanks. Any, any sharing question? We have a, have a little bit over 10 minutes by my clock. Yeah, and why don't we say your name?
3: Oh, um, my name's Clark, and uh, I think it was 2004 that you led loving-kindness retreat with Sylvia. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> January, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It was the first time I um, heard you teach, and, uh, and I, s- I went to one of your... Were- days working with judgments sometime yeah. in that two-year period, and get a little follow-up at your house and stuff. And oh, wow, yeah. I was so happy that you talked about the swimming part, which is transformative for me. So I've, uh, I teach, uh, I, teach, I teach negotiation, which involves kind of nonviolent communication, um, but a kind of violent place in law school. Uh, and so what I do is I have um, heard someone describe, I think it's in like your Wednesday group, the swim practice. Yeah. So I have my list of my sixteen students that I would see at a swim. You're there. sixteen. Sixteen students. So before I swim, oh yeah, I put the like list there. Oh wow. Uh, and then each lap, uh, I use a different student. Oh wow. And so as my arm goes I'll go, may maybe be peaceful. Maybe kind to yourself. May yeah. You appreciate yourself. Uh, it's, it's like breathe in like threes typically. Those those are like yeah, three wow. pauses. And it's kind of interesting that. You know, most of the time, it's fine, but what's interesting is for me at least, um, uh, I think the way of describing it as well, So sometimes something negative will come up that's kind of surprising to me. So I'm wishing the student well, and then I realize oh, I'm kind of annoyed yeah. <laughs> about this, and it comes up. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes I can predict it, like, the student's kind of annoying and aware of that yeah. experience. Is annoying. But I think it's kind of a purification process. That's right. That's right. And, uh, yeah, so I find that really helpful. So I guess that's, I wanted to share that how helpful that practice has been for me um, of doing it with swimming. And when I'm not teaching, during the summer I use, like, different people I'm going to encounter yeah. that day. So, like, yeah. pre- free. See the, the encounter, yeah. And then when there's the something might happen that's, yeah, it's like it would be triggering. Otherwise, it's it feels to me as if there's this um, not fog. What would it be? This like frame of kindness or this like energy uh, that's, yeah. that's there. Um, so I wanted to ask you a question. It's just like I find this list is super helpful. And I like the idea of practicing with one month or something. But you know and um, recently, you were also on one of Dan Brown's last retreats. What's that? Okay, You were on one of Dan Brown's virtual oh yeah retreats. Yeah, I was on like a bunch of those. Like, yeah, through yeah. When he was doing it, and so I noticed that as um, I, I looking at this list, I noticed there are two things that mean a lot to me that I think overlap with you and part of that aren't here. And might be sometimes curious why they're not here. Maybe they're less central. So one of them is like a um, like a body practice. Mm-hmm. So like whether it's yoga it's mindful or just just swimming about that. And the other one is um, something of the um, which you talked about in the Wednesday group. Sometimes the awakened awareness tradition, either from dance, you know, in the bond and Tibetan traditions, or um, from the. Thai um, for some monastery tradition, and so I'm just like, curious yeah. why those things aren't here. I yeah. sort of suspect I don't, but I'm curious.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot there. Um, first of all, great to you know um, have a, a swimming compatriot. <laughs> we have uh, definitely now a swimming team. <laughs> 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 and, you know, sharing the experiences of bringing loving-kindness or metta to, uh, to, to swimming. And then also noticing that things come up, you know, and we often frame the heart practices as having aspects of purification. They're not designed to just say, okay, I will right now be incredibly loving. It's not like that. Right? It's more we go in that direction with our practice, but then it's almost like at different moments things come up that are really in a way blocking the heart or or that come with the same territory you know um, may you really, may you be may you be happy but here are some ways that you could get it together (laughs) something like that, right? and so we call that purification like like we named it Yeah, and then um, in terms of things not on my list of ten, um, by having ten ways, even though in many traditions when you have ten it's meant to be complete. Like, you know, I haven't heard a lot of critique of the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Hey, you left out! (laughs) What's going on? And so, um, but very I'm very aware that I could have a list of 50 ways of working with reactivity, and that uh, all of what I might have. So I was selective here, and they tend to be more ones that we could start with, right? And so that's why some things like talking about awakened or non-dual awareness is not on the list. It's not a beginning practice, right? The, you, you one works up to it, and uh, but I think you know it could be. Um, I think having a body practice could be something that might deserve inclusion on the list. I think that, that that's really crucial because uh, you know like, I like to encourage i mean I think I mentioned you know like when we are mindfully studying a pattern of reactivity, study it at the level of the body, and so for a lot of us, having a body practice is crucial because it helps us to just be more aware of the bodies you know like when I, you know, when I grew up, even though I, I actually was a competitive swimmer, but I wasn't really aware of my body, even though I was, you know, very physically active, and you know, it took it took uh, later, you know, coming into my twenties and thirties to really start, you know, doing yoga and stuff. That, so I, I would I would take that as really actually helpful to for the next version of this. Practice. Yeah, please, uh, Jeff. Is it skillful to ask uh, what the origin of these reactions are? Or is that
2: just more thinking, more mind?
4: Yeah, is it skillful to ask what are the sources of the reactivity? Um, Maybe a few responses to that. Uh, We could use the sense of source in a few ways. I think it's very helpful as part maybe of reflection to ask what was the trigger Or what was the, uh, you know, what was the, what happened that triggered my reactivity? You know, like my sense, you know, of uh, I have the thought that person's not listening to me or not understanding me, maybe a comment. That's really helpful to know what triggers the reactivity, because then when we, you know, and we can often... And that does involve some reflection, and that can happen after the fact. Mm-hmm. Right? We can, at the end of the day, say, OK, what were some major places where there was reactivity? OK, what triggered it? Let me reflect on that one. That person said this. Right. That can be really helpful, not to think about it for hours, but just to ask that question. That can be really helpful. And then in the sense of looking at what I was calling limiting beliefs, that can sometimes be helpful. Oh, here are some of the roots of my sense of, you know, people don't understand me, right? That can be helpful and could be part of psychotherapy and, uh, you know, if I'd be doing one-on-one work, not, you know, not a lot of thinking, 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 but over time knowing, okay, I know that comes from early childhood, these kind of experiences or whatever, and that can be useful to know because partly we can, un- you know, we can understand uh, that uh, it's deep conditioning, you know, and and that uh, it's, you know, we've repeated the same neural pathways uh, three million times. It has some energy, <laughs> right? And and yet, because of neuroplasticity, it can be transformed, right? surprisingly quickly, sometimes. Right, even though it's been repeated so many times, so that's useful sometimes to go back like that. And, and but um, and then I think also can be useful really to know. Okay, here's what's here's the place where what I was calling insight, or intelligence, or validity is mixed up with my reactivity. To identify that, I think that's also very useful. It's not so much the cause, but that that is useful to know, because then we can say, okay, let me preserve, you know, oh, that person didn't keep the agreement, that's important, but let me preserve that, but then work with the reactivity. Yeah. And time for one more, I think. Mm-hmm. We, should we finish in two minutes? Two and a half minutes? Okay. Please.
2: Hi, uh, thank you very much for this guidance, your guidance. And this. You're welcome, to mm-hmm. um You know, I recently had experience, and one of the things that can get triggered in me is being an out, feeling like I'm an outsider like I don't belong. Yeah. And like I'm not connected, like I'm excluded somehow. Yeah. And I think that goes down to a really deep not just circumstantial and social political because I'm a gay man. And my yeah. experiences around that, but to a deep fear of, that has to do with survival. Of survival. And, uh, so there's that kind of primal level to it. Yeah. And then in working with it, um, it was my relationship to a group and the power structure in the group, yeah. which I felt, I found myself almost slipping into uh, um, a paranoid fantasy that there's a secret cabal organizing. And I realized, you know, that's kind of on the political level, that's what's happening. So there's a kind of playing on that fear. Yeah. Um, anyway, but as I worked through it, I found like it's... My experience, and and as I recognized it and investigated it, my experience in the group shifted. Your experience in the group shifted. I realized that I I, saw it in a whole different way. So in a way, there wasn't any need to speak about it or work it through with other people. It's just it was so strong that it was affecting my perception of what was actually going on in the moment.
4: Yeah. So yeah, beautiful, the beautiful. So again, there's a lot in what you shared uh, by knowing that you know some of our patterns of reactivity do go back to um, um, survival. It can be very, very deep, and some of that you know could be passed on even intergenerationally in different ways, and a lot of different um, dimensions to it. Um, and so seeing that can give some appreciation and then you know what I didn't mention so much but what I work with a lot when I teach on transforming the judgmental mind is what that transformation looks like which for you is happening experientially in the group right you were you know the the old pattern was there but you were developing like a sense of belonging that was really uh, in a way developing uh, we could say at the level of the brain, new neural pathways, right? You know, oh, I belong here. You know, I'm, I'm connected, right? And so even though those patterns might come up, something with a big picture is changing, right? And so that's, that's part of the transformation process and very beautiful. And sometimes it just happens like in a, a new situation, a new relationship, whatever. And sometimes we want consciously to go in that direction. Sometimes both. Right. You know, so it's uh, yeah. It's, thank you for that. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you. I, I could keep on for the next hour. <laughs> uh, but I, I, think, uh, no, I love the I love this exploration. Like hey, it's, it gets right at the heart of so much. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Donald. And uh, I'd just like to uh, uh, put in a pitch.
1: Uh, if anybody in this room or on Zoom would like to interact more with Donald, uh, one opportunity is our retreat, which is October 20th to 22nd in Soquel, California.
4: In the beautiful Santa Cruz Mountains. In the beautiful Santa Cruz
1: Mountains. <laughs> so check out our website and uh, enroll.
0: Here's- I can get on to that. Uh, right now we've got- no private rooms
2: available. We have four spaces of two double rooms available. So if you're interested, come see me at the uh, reception hour.
4: Any, any camping sites available? They're all gone. They're all gone, huh? Yeah, so it's
1: pretty pretty well booked already.
4: Any other
0: announcements? Uh, yes, I'm the host today, and please stay and enjoy the company of the saga. There are our refreshments and hot water for tea um, and if you use a cup you can just uh, put it in the sink and I'll take care of it. Um, I'll be going around with the Donna Bowl to accept contributions to cover our expenses. Your generosity is appreciated. Uh, donations in the range of ten to twenty dollars help the Saga to expenses. These include honorarium for our Donna speakers, rent for this beautiful center. Uh, Hopefully in the future we will start the monthly dinners at Larkin Street Youth Services. Also our quarterly newsletter mail, mostly to people from prison. There's a newcomer sign-up sheet on the credenza. If you wish to be included and receive our of Membership directory, please sign up and include contact information you wish to share with the group. And some members go out to lunch after the meeting. Everyone is welcome to join them. The group meets at the front door around 1230.
4: Tom? I'll just mention uh, two upcoming events. One of them is an online two-day retreat. It's the weekend before our retreat in the you know Santa Cruz Mountains, so it may be too much. But it's two days online. Uh, Through Spirit Rock, it's on the theme of developing skillful speech and empathy amidst differences and conflicts. Mm -hmm. Mm So, relevant to our times. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, secondly, I'll be doing another version, a six-day non-residential retreat in Berkeley on transforming the judgmental mind in February, in the first half of February. And, you know, it's reasonably near BART, so you could, uh, you know, you could, uh, so it also being non-residential, the the cost will be less than a residential retreat. It will go like 9 to 5 for six days in a row, and, you know, 10, 15-minute walk from BART. So, I think February 6 to 11, so, with, uh, with Eve Decker also.
2: A few years ago, you said you were working on a book about transforming
4: a judgmental mind. Is, are you still? or <laughs> I, I, I'm still doing yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I'm still working on it, but it still needs work.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: I <think> in the, <laughs> and I, I'm intending to finish it in the next nine months. <laughs> okay. And oh, we're going to put in the uh, preface or introduction. If I had done less internal work, with my own judgmental mind, the book would have been finished much earlier. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the, uh, the support. Uh,
1: any other announcements? Uh, Donald, do you want to, uh, will you lead us in the dedication of that? Sure. Uh, Thanks. Let's stand
4: for the dedication of that. May the benefits of our time together support ourselves, support our practice in known and unknown ways. May our time together be of benefit to those in our own circles in known and unknown ways. And then beyond our own circles, may we offer the benefits of our time together. To all beings, the ultimate horizon of our practice, may we offer the benefits of our time together to all beings in known and unknown ways, knowing that we are part of all beings. Yay! Thank you, thank
2: you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.